In the heart of the pristine Ecuadorian Amazon, life flourished. Beginning in the 1960s, global oil giant Texaco, later Chevron, began deliberately dumping billions of gallons of toxic oil waste directly into the jungle and waterways. It's an ecocide, which many scientists and environmentalists have called the Chernobyl of the Amazon. In response, the indigenous people and farmers rose up and organized, and with the help of an international team of lawyers, launched a lawsuit against the polluters. In what was an historic victory for the people and the Amazon, in 2011, they won a $10 billion legal settlement against Chevron. It should have ended there. But it didn't. What followed is an unprecedented corporate hijacking of the U.S. judicial system, as Chevron, instead of complying with the rule of law, chose to viciously attack those who had won the case against them. Welcome to another edition of the Stop Ecocide podcast series. Mass damage and destruction of nature is called ecocide. In most of the world, it's legally permitted. It's time to change the rules. It's time to make ecocide an international crime. Stop ecocide, change the law, protect the earth. It appalls me that after almost 50 years of this awful behavior, it's still out there. The pollution is still out there. People are still dying. Not a single individual in Chevron has been held accountable. Not a single individual in Chevron has actually been charged with a crime. Not a single individual in Chevron who, you know, who made these decisions has been held liable in a civil lawsuit for even $1. That's American human rights lawyer Stephen Donzinger, who has been in the crosshairs of Chevron ever since he and his team won the settlement against them in Ecuador. I had the opportunity to speak with Stephen about his work in Ecuador and what's happened to him since. It's a story of defending the land against ecocide, of persistence and strength in the face of corporate retribution. I'm your host, Eric Aris, for today's episode, Voice of the People, Stephen Donzinger and the Power of Ecocide Law. I got involved um, in in this you know epic lawsuit against Chevron almost by accident. I was in law school and I met a student from Ecuador whose father had told him about um, this awful environmental contamination, and we organized under the leadership of his, of his father, who was a lawyer in Massachusetts, um, a delegation of lawyers and scientists. Uh, to go down and investigate. And we went down, our first trip was in April of 1993. Spent about a week down there. It was really apocalyptic. I could not believe my eyes seeing like lakes of oil in the jungle um, in complete disregard for the health of the people, open air waste pits, um, unlined that were leaching into the groundwater and running their contents off into streams and rivers that people use for drinking water. 
I mean, it was as if someone said, how can we most easily cause harm to people when we drill for oil and design that system? The upshot is thousands and thousands of people were being pummeled um, daily with multiple exposures to cancer-causing chemicals in the air they were breathing, the water they were drinking, and in the food they were eating, such that today, you know, decades later, thousands of people likely have died from cancer. And I want to emphasize that, you know, in a personal level, it impacted me greatly. Like I, I needed to do something. I, everyone felt the same way on that trip. Um, so we decided to, as lawyers, do what lawyers do. In response to the horrific pollution, Stephen and his team worked with over 30,000 indigenous people and farmers who began by filing a lawsuit in 1993 in a New York federal court. The litigation has lasted 28 years and continues to this day. First phase, first 10 years, the Ecuadorian affected communities, the indigenous peoples, were trying to sue Texaco in U.S. court on the theory that the decision to pollute in Ecuador had been made in the United States. That's where the wrongdoing occurred, the fundamental wrongdoing. That was a 10-year battle. Ultimately, Texaco, then Chevron, Chevron had bought Texaco during that period. They won that battle. So the case was sent back to Ecuador on the condition that Chevron accept jurisdiction in Ecuadorian courts, which in retrospect was an enormous victory for the people of Ecuador, because normally they would never accept the jurisdiction of Ecuador's courts. So then we entered phase two, which was went back to Ecuador with an Ecuadorian legal team in the lead. We litigated the case for eight years, and it lasted eight years, which is an extraordinarily long period of time for a trial, largely because all Texaco, I'm sorry, Chevron's strategy the entire time was to delay, undermine the trial, sabotage the trial. They clearly determined it was cheaper to pay a lot of lawyers to engage in these kinds of obstructionist activities than it would be to actually litigate the case on the merits. So after a tremendous amount of fighting we ended up prevailing in 2011. We won a um, what turned out to be about a $10 billion pollution judgment. That judgment remains one of the most significant in the history of environmental law. Chevron, however, vowed never to pay it and threatened the indigenous people of Ecuador with a lifetime of litigation. They then launched a vicious and illegal retaliation campaign against Donzinger, that involved some 60 law firms, 2,000 lawyers, six public relation firms, and multiple fake websites. It made headlines around the world. It was back in 2013 that Donziger won a $9.5 billion settlement against the oil giant Chevron in Ecuador. Soon after winning it, Chevron took him to court in the United States on charges of bribery and witness tampering. Federal prosecutors declined to take the case, but Judge Lewis Kaplan appointed private attorneys, attorneys who once worked for Chevron, to prosecute it, and in a trial without a jury, found him guilty. The contempt charges stem from his refusal to comply they with court They came after me, largely, and other lawyers were mostly focused on me, where they came back to the very court in New York where they, they we had originally filed the lawsuit that they said was inadequate to hear the trial, and they sued me for $60 billion personally, um, the most amount of money any individual in the United States has ever been sued for. Um, it was obviously a retaliation uh, 
play against me designed to intimidate me and other lawyers into leaving the case, abandoning our clients, which we never did. And over that period of time, which has now lasted 11 years, they were able to enlist the help of a New York trial judge who had ties to the tobacco industry, who I believe is intellectually dishonest. He denied me a jury. He let Chevron pay a witness $2 million to come in and lie about me and claim I had bribed the judge in Ecuador, which is not true. And there's no evidence it is other than this from this words from this paid witness. Chevron went back to this judge in New York where I live and got him to order me to turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron, which in my view was a completely unlawful order. I'd never heard of such an order, would violate attorney-client privileges. So I appealed that order. And while I appealed the order, the judge who issued it, Judge Lewis Kaplan, um, charging with a crime. He charged me with criminal contempt of court for disobeying an order that I had appealed uh, to the appellate court, which again was unheard of. So there were all these very irregular attacks on me that were beginning to happen due to this judge who I felt is not complying with his ethical duties to be neutral and to be fair. It still did not intimidate me. And um, Judge Kaplan then had to take his contempt charges to the United States attorney here in New York, the federal prosecutor who refused to prosecute me. So he appointed a private corporate law firm to prosecute me in the name of the US government. And it turned out that this law firm, Seward and Kissel, had Chevron as a client, had many oil and gas companies as clients. And ultimately, um, they had me locked up in my home um, for 813 days, you know, well over two years awaiting trial on a, what turns out to be a misdemeanor with the longest possible sentence, even if I were guilty and I'm not guilty, but even if I was, is six months. And the longest sentence ever imposed on a lawyer for this offense is 90 days of home confinement. So ultimately, you know, today's my 986 day in home confinement as I give you this interview. I served for a crime I don't believe I committed over 10 times longer than the longest sentence ever imposed on a lawyer for this type of offense. It is pure retaliation for my successful human rights advocacy on behalf of the indigenous peoples of Ecuador and for really calling out what I believe is the ecocide of, of what happened down there due to Texaco's and now Chevron's, you know, deliberate engineering to pollute that has killed many, many people. I mean, I think what they did is the very def definition of ecocide. And the reality is our successful advocacy has caused a ferocious counterattack against me. I have paid a very, very heavy price for our success, but it doesn't change the fact that we did win the case. The people of Ecuador won the case and they are trying to punish the people of Ecuador by attacking me and using me to try to intimidate other lawyers and they're not doing this very, very important work, which is to hold major polluters accountable for, for you know, intentional pollution. Um, and in this case, I believe, you know, ecocide. So that's my story. It's an interesting one and it's a tough one, but I feel really good right now because I know deep down this is happening because of our success. It's a convoluted and frightening story made intentionally complicated by Chevron to confuse and demoralize Donzinger and his supporters. Instead, it's had the opposite effect, mobilizing an increasingly broad and vocal movement calling for Donzinger's release, including 
120 human rights environmental groups, 11 U.S. congresspersons, 68 Nobel laureates, hundreds of lawyers, Amnesty International, the United Nations. It's the kind of response you'd expect for some activist or political prisoner illegally detained in some far-flung dictatorship. But no, this is happening in the United States. There's a very, very disturbing and I would say unprecedented feature to my prosecution for criminal contempt and my long detention, which is that I was not prosecuted by the United States government. I was, not, I was prosecuted by a private corporation. I was prosecuted by Chevron directly through one of its law firms. That is the same Chevron um, against whom I won a $10 billion judgment on behalf of indigenous peoples of Ecuador. I asked the question, how can one live in a society where a lawyer who wins a civil pollution judgment against a company gets prosecuted criminally in the name of the government by that company? This is a clear and flagrant conflict of interest. It's a clear violation of the rule of law, and it is clearly illegal. So the idea that a private company in any country could actually take control of the public prosecutorial machinery and turn it against their adversary to deprive him of his liberty, which is what they did to me for almost three years on, in a bogus case, which is what this was, because nobody in the United States has ever been prosecuted for criminal contempt of court based on the, an appeal of a civil discovery order, which is what I did. Appealing this order, I turned over my confidential information to Chevron, which is totally legitimate. And I would say ethically obligated in terms of my behavior as a lawyer to do. So this is really scary. And, you know, I've never seen this anywhere else in the world. I mean, even in authoritarian, autocratic, dictatorial countries, they don't let a private company <laughs> prosecute someone directly. I mean, people assume if I was prosecuted, I was prosecuted by a government prosecutor. I wasn't. I was prosecuted by Chevron in the first corporate prosecution in world history. Um, it's illegitimate. It's a violation of the rule of law, and it must be overturned um, by the appellate courts, or if not by the appellate courts, by President Biden, who we've asked to pardon me. As horrifying as all this is, it's important to remember it's all a smokescreen, a way for one of the largest, wealthiest corporations in the world to hide the ecocide that they knowingly perpetrated on the ancestral lands of indigenous Ecuadorians. Stephen. So I think, you know, codifying the crime of ecocide as part of the law, part of international law, would have a huge deterrent impact on the kind of things I have personally witnessed down in the Amazon of Ecuador that Chevron and Texaco carried out, which is a deliberate mass poisoning um, out of pure greed, that is to keep their production costs to the bare minimum while they were extracting enormous profits. You know, they chose to dump billions of gallons of cancer-causing toxic waste onto indigenous ancestral lands and into waterways in the Amazon purely to save money, purely to enrich their shareholders, knowing it was clearly foreseeable that those kinds of activities would end up killing people. And, you know, I think that is the very definition of ecocide. 
So if the ecocide law had been in effect at the time these decisions were made, I think it would have made, been a major factor in the calculus of the decision makers in these oil companies at the time. And I seriously doubt they would have engaged in some of the more egregious practices, the, the more flagrant practices, the dumping, the deliberate dumping on a daily basis into streams and rivers that people were drinking out of. Um, you know, I, I question whether they would have done that. And I think the revolutionary change in the law is to take responsibility for these kinds of acts and pin it on individuals who are making the decisions as opposed to just, oh, it's Chevron, it's the corporation. So, you know, if you're a CEO or a general counsel or a chief engineer, if you're the one making these types of decisions, you're going to think two, three, four times before you engage in this kind of behavior, this kind of misconduct. The idea of the ecocide law, the possibility of the ecocide law is already changing the calculus today. I mean, there is little doubt that that the movement to make ecocide a new atrocity crime um, is sending shockwaves in the legal departments of every major oil and gas company in the world. And there's no doubt they're going to mount, if they haven't already, a strategy to try to block its implementation. But they watch these things very, very closely um, on the scale of the industry itself. And they are already extremely worried about it from what I can tell. And, you know, that kind of thing in combination with the lawsuit that we have filed and successfully executed against Chevron with a $10 billion pollution judgment that is causing tremendous financial risk to the company is another key element um, to the movement to stop the burning of the earth, you know, to stop these awful crimes committed by corporations. You know, the other key part about the ecocide law that interests me greatly is the way it applies to private companies. You know, a lot of international law and human rights law is oriented and designed to stop government misconduct against individuals. Um, that sort of leave, leaves a lot of private corporations in the oil and gas sector and the mining sector with a free pass. You know, it's been far too long um, to, you know, for us to be living in a world, particularly with the crisis we live in, for the individuals who make these decisions to put profit over planet and profit over people and profit over vulnerable indigenous communities who are now trying to stave off extinction down in Ecuador's Amazon, you know, without paying a personal price for that. So I think this law is critically important. I think it's the legal fight of our time, of this generation, to get it implemented. And it must be done as quickly as possible as a critically important tool to help those of us who are on the front lines save the planet. Juana Perea, she was an environmental leader and women's organizer opposed to the Puerto of Truga, and she was assassinated in Nuki in 2020. Justice for, for Juana. Justice! Magdalena Kukunawa, she was an indigenous people's defender from the Makawan community and she was assassinated in Arauca in 2019. Justice for Magdalena. Justice! Jamit Alonso Silva Torres, he was defender of the Kukui National Park and he was assassinated in Boyacá last year. Justice for Jamit. Justice! And many more, but time 
time would it be enough to name all of them? Because we won't achieve any solution here at COP26, even though if we don't defend the defenders. This comes as 2020 was the deadliest year on record for environmental defenders. Louis Wilson, senior advisor at Global Witness, an international NGO that challenges abuses of power to protect human rights and the environment, spoke at COP26 on the increasing violence towards land defenders. Across the globe, violence is increasing, and really we can understand the killing of land and environmental activists as another metric of the climate crisis. As we see these other indicators spiral out of control, you're also seeing violence get worse. And what that tells us is that the climate crisis is also a human rights issue. And without severe and drastic redistribution of political power and, a, and a putting human rights at the centre of our response to the climate crisis, the violence will continue and sadly, so too will the other metrics continue to spiral out of control. Stephen, as you hear these numbers coming from Global Witness and elsewhere, and in light of the persecution you've personally faced how do you sustain yourself? How do you keep going? The way I have gotten through what Chevron and these two judges who were tied into Chevron have thrown at me is really can be boiled down to one word, solidarity. The amount of support I've gotten since I've been put under detention at home now for almost a thousand days has really been amazing. It's something that has totally surpassed my expectations includes 68 Nobel laureates have demanded my release, 11 U.S. congresspersons, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of lawyers have signed petitions for me from around the world. Um, so many citizens have stepped up and sent me messages. Amnesty International has issued three urgent action bulletins to help protect me, has had a huge impact in protecting me. Um, in addition, uh, 120 uh, NGOs, environmental groups, human rights groups have signed on to a letter demanding President Biden pardon me and erase this completely unjust conviction. So because of Chevron's overreach, I mean, I think they thought I'd just give up and be crushed. Um, to the contrary, I've grown stronger. It's like the more they attack, the stronger we grow. And I'm now a different kind of person with a much wider base of support, which essentially translates into a much wider base of support for what they really fear, which is the people of Ecuador who own the judgment against them and who can enforce it against their assets. So, you know, while I paid a heavy price for my human rights work, a shockingly heavy price, the reality is I think we're stronger than ever. I'm very hopeful for the future. Um, and I would say their strategy backfired. Um, we are far more stronger today because of the attacks on me and others on our team than we would have been otherwise. So while they thought we would quit, they thought we would give up, they thought we would be crushed, the opposite has occurred. We're far stronger. Other lawyers who are working on judgment enforcement are poised to really go after them and force them to comply with the rule of law and pay the people they poisoned what they legally owe them for a real cleanup of the billions of gallons of cancer-causing toxic waste they dumped into the Amazon of Ecuador. Stephen, given everything that's happened in Ecuador and everything that's happened to you since, 
What advice would you give to, especially to young people who are considering getting into human rights activism? My advice to young people is to get into this field and do the hard frontline work to save the planet. Like I know there are challenges, but what life is worth living without taking on these important challenges that really have the potential to save our world, to save all species, to save our ecosystem? I mean, what could be a more meaningful life than to jump in and engage in that kind of battle? I can say, and I really want people to understand this, that even though I've spent almost a thousand days in detention, I'm really happy with what we've accomplished. Like, I feel great. I'm so proud of what we've accomplished. A lot of lawyers and community leaders worked on this case. We made history. I'll repeat what I said earlier. We're stronger now than ever before. It seems like the more they attack, the stronger we get. So I would encourage every young person, every citizen, no matter what your age, to engage in some way, shape, or form in this, you know, this really existential effort um, to save the planet, of which the law is a part, but also activism is a part, campaigning is a part, changing the law, like the ecocide movement to create, make ecocide an atrocity. Crime is a critical part of this movement, but there's so many ways people can engage. Engage in the way you can in your community in the way that best works for you is my advice. For more information and to support Stephen, please go to freedonziger.com. That's F-R-E-E-D-O-N-Z-I-G-E-R.com. They want me to walk away. They want me to quit. They want me to shut up. That will never happen. I can't let it happen. feel like this has changed me and made me a better person. I can't explain it. I'm operating like at a higher level. This just kind of raised me up, and I feel like I do have a larger responsibility to a broader thing than what I had before. And I need to understand that my responsibilities are broader than they were as a result of that and I just try to live up to all the possibilities in ways I'd never imagined before I know no other way I, I can't explain where it comes from cannot let them get away with this and when I say this I mean really what they did in Ecuador. That's what's driven me all these years. And, you know, I, I just can't stop doing what I do. On April 25th, 2022, after 993 days of illegal house arrest, Stephen Donziger is freed. Outside his apartment in Manhattan, a party of thousands of people erupts into the streets. You've been listening to Voice of the People, Stephen Donziger and the Power of Ecocide Law. I'd like to thank Stephen for taking the time to speak with us, and we wish him the best on his recent release. Our production technician is Dave Ronald. We've had additional music by Ula Lampella and Sonia Fracchi, plus Andy Squiff and Bensound.com with news clips from Democracy Now! and Al Jazeera. For more information, you can find us online at stopecocide.earth. I am Eric Eris. We'll see you next time.
You've been listening to an episode of Stop Ecocide, Change the Law, Change the World. This series is executive produced by Donna Grace Campbell for Stop Ecocide Canada, with music courtesy of Kaylee Watts. For more information, find us online at stopecocide.ca. Thanks so much for listening.